You're listening to the ERLC podcast. <laughs> I'll try. I'll try. Lindsay, Lindsay, you are the you're the fun assassin. You just killed it. You just killed it. Whatever. I just inserted fun into the situation because Josh was on another monologue. Oh my gosh. Just teasing. All right. Let me let me close out with this monologue here. Can try to make it make sense at all. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where each week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast today are my co-host, Lindsay Nicolay. Hello, everybody. And back from vacation is our faithful co-host and, you know, long-lost friend, Brent Leatherwood. Hello. I am happy to be back, even though apparently my pouty friends are being especially pouty as we record this. It's because we didn't get to go on vacation. You did. That's right. Well, it sounds like Brent had a great time, and we're really glad to have him back. I mean, you know, people, fans of the podcast, they, they need Brent's culture rundown. So fortunately, you're going to get it today. And later in the podcast, uh, we're going to talk to a special guest, Katie McCoy, who is a professor at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and Scarborough College. And we're excited to talk to her later on. But Lindsay, so that we can get started with the podcast, tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week. Before we get to our content on ERLC.com, I just want to take a minute and let listeners know about our two newsletters that we have, Highlights and The Weekly. You can go to our website at ERLC.com and scroll down to the Stay Connected bar. There you can choose Highlights or The Weekly or both, enter your name and your email and hit the subscribe button. First up, we have a really important article by Victor Veith, and he shares four ways churches can respond to the spiritual impact of child abuse. So children that are abused, he writes, um, will often wrestle with theological questions or questions like, does this mean that God is against me too? Or I prayed for the abuse to stop. Why didn't God answer my prayers? And a lot of times people in churches, um, specifically leaders, are not equipped to be able to to help these children and to answer their questions. And so he gives uh, a few points to help pastors and church leaders shepherd children who have experienced abuse, but also to prevent abuse. So for instance, he says um, that churches should witness their faith by implementing child protection policies to prevent abuse, that churches should require quality training on recognizing uh, abuse Churches should speak openly about abuse, and then uh, churches should develop collaborations with child protection professionals. So um, this is really important to Victor. He um, is a professional in this area, has dedicated his life to protecting children, and he calls us as a Christian church um, to be known by our fruit, and part of that fruit being caring for and protecting children. That's really good, Lindsay. You know, we spent a lot of time over the last several years talking about the issue of abuse and whether we're talking about sexual abuse or physical abuse uh, and whether we're talking about children or adults. Uh, this is something that is incredibly important and it's something that, that the church has a major role uh, to play in, not only inside the church to make sure churches themselves are safe places for people uh, who have suffered from abuse, but also uh, to ensure that the church is able to respond to uh, situations and outside or outside of its walls uh, in order to care for people who are hurting or who have been, uh, you know, affected by by this kind of suffering. And this actually reminds me, I think it's really timely, uh, one of our colleagues shared a tweet thread from a reporter in Kansas City who was noting that some experts have said, hey, child abuse reports uh, seem to be down right now. And that's because so many individuals that uh, report on child abuse are not having any of the typical daily interactions that they usually would to be able to report on stuff like that. And so it's just, you know, something I think that is, should be top of mind for us as we are concerned about the welfare of the children in our communities. Yeah. And it's a, it's just another reminder of the effects of the coronavirus, the pandemic and stay at home orders that it's not fun and it's not safe for all people. And we need to be praying for these children and um, spouses in domestic abuse situations. But also our listeners might not know, we do a um, biannual uh, magazine, Light Magazine. And so this, we release a summer and a winter issue. This summer we were set to release one on sexual abuse, but we had to bring in a special issue for coronavirus and ministering in, in, in uncertain times because of just the unexpected nature of 2020. However, 
abuse is still an issue that we care deeply about and we're going to cover abuse and we have some fantastic articles for our winter edition that will be coming out December, January, sometime around that time. So just wanted to make listeners aware. Okay, so pivoting to the issue of racial injustice, which is something that again, we have been talking about for weeks here that's come to a head in our country. We have a neat article on our site by Jamal Williams, who's a black pastor in Louisville, and then by Jim Tipton as well. And this is a story of an unlikely friendship that they have. And the funny thing is when Jamal sent this in, and I started reading this about this unlikely friendship, Jim is a older man with grown kids and grandchildren, and he's a white man, um, I was like, hey, I know Jim Tipton. We used to go to church together, and we almost went on a mission trip to Africa together. So it's just a small world. But Jamal and Jim have written an article titled, The Importance of Christian Friendships That Defy Expectations, Loving One Another Across Generational and Cultural Differences. And it's just a good testimony as to how they built their friendship, how they continue to cultivate their friendship, how their friendship is not without um, the butting of heads, how they show one another respect in their differences. And they give three keys that they have found that helps them sustain this cross-cultural uh, and cross-generational friendship. Well, I haven't had the privilege of meeting uh, Pastor Tipton, but I have had the privilege of meeting and chatting and having a great time with Jamal Williams. And I'm just so thankful for his heart uh, that wants to build bridges. And it just comes out in this article. I think it's a great piece and uh, commend it to our audience to take some time to read, especially in this cultural moment that we're living in. I think that's so good. Um, I was having a conversation with some friends the other day, and we were talking about how you'll see people occasionally post on social media, you know, if you believe this or if you don't believe this, go ahead and unfollow me. Uh, and honestly, it makes me sad, like every time I see those kinds of posts, because, you know, and oftentimes inside of our friendships, we're able to appreciate one another, not just despite our differences, but a lot of times because of them, because of the different perspectives that they bring and the way that they allow us to see the world in a different way. You're right about that, Josh. I, I should start following you again on social media. Thanks. You can uncancel me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think the word, the proper word for that is redeem. So I like this. I especially like this article just because it's a practical outworking of this theology and of living this out. And I love to see examples of this. And I love that they shared the bumps in the roads, the ups and the downs, and but how they've loved each other um, in spite of all of it. So a lot to learn from Jamal and Jim. And then finally, our resident, well, our chief resident nerd on staff, Alex Ward. He's my go-to when it comes to just random facts about things or Googling things or book or resource recommendations because he's able to pull them out of a hat so I turned to Alex for an article that would have to do with America's founding July 4th, since we're celebrating on Saturday. And um, I wanted some resources to learn more about America's founding. So of course, Alex came through with a whole list of resources. I'll just um, name some of them. They sound so interesting. Of course, he recommended reading our founding documents, Declaration of Independence, the Constitution. I do have to admit, I don't think I've ever read these in full uh, maybe in Lindsay. school, oh. <laughs> maybe in school, but I do not remember. I'm sorry. I've got it several just, copies. You can borrow one. Okay. It's just the way it is. Okay. So he recommended like, for example, biographies, Adams by David McCullough. And then he recommended, this sounds so good by Tabidi Anyabwile, may we meet in the heavenly world, the piety of Lemuel Haynes. And he was uh, the first African-American man to be ordained as a minister. And so uh, he also shares religious histories. Um, for example, God of Liberty, a religious history of the American Revolution by Thomas Kidd, who uh, Alex is a really big fan of. So he just has given us some good recommendations here. Also, don't forget, but on July 3rd, if you have, uh, which is today, if you have uh, Disney+, Plus, you can watch Hamilton. And uh, that also will give you a look into some of our founding in a rap way. Uh, but I just thought this was a really helpful resource. Go ahead and check it out if you're looking to learn more about America's founding. And uh, I'm sure Josh and Brent would like to comment because they are big history nerds. Oh, the, the comments are coming, Lindsay. The comments are coming. And I'm, I'm trying to just bridle myself so I can be reined in slightly. 
So wait, so just just so my mind doesn't completely explode. So when I say something like when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary to dissolve, like none of that, none of that at all. It sounds familiar. I I couldn't find it in the documents. I don't know if that comes from the Declaration or the Constitution. I I don't know if I should be admitting this out loud. (laughs) I'm going to get mean letters sent to my house. What I, what I would say, all of what you just said uh, that Alex is recommending, definitely take time to read those. And I would also, just for wider context, recommend reading both the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers, which was the public back and forth that was occurring uh, in the public square at the time of our nation's founding. Uh, those are wonderful documents, rich documents that um, help you understand what the current atmosphere was like as our nation was being founded. Josh, where's your take? I mean, I want to echo everything Brent said. If you haven't read, you know, first of all, if you have not read the Declaration of Independence or, or the Constitution in a while, you should just read them because that's good practice and this is a good time because it's around the 4th of July. Uh, also, this reminds me of a West Wing episode because, you know, so many things do. And I was wondering, you know, since does. we talk about the West Wing so so much on this podcast. Like, I wonder if we should get like some like, you know, dun, dun, dun music every time that we mention the West Wing. But anyway, or maybe the West Wing theme song or something. Anyway, uh, there's a scene that's fantastic where Toby, uh, the communications director, says that he needs a copy of the Constitution. Uh, and somebody says, is it still in print? And he loses his <laughs> mind. <laughs> and says, you know, if you can't find one, try Amazon.com. If you can't find one there, bust into the National Archives. So anyway, uh, yes, th- these are great, great recommendations. You should check out each of them. Yeah. So as you are uh, putting ketchup and mustard on your hot dog, as you're eating your watermelon and your red, white, and blue desserts, make sure you pick up one of these uh, resources, check them out, and do not throw away your shot. Hamilton reference. <sighs> I'm not up to speed on Hamilton because, as I've said before on this podcast, I think he's an overrated historical figure. But uh, let me say, also while you're doing those things, as you are putting ketchup and mustard on your hot dogs and you're watching fireworks, tune in to the nation celebration on your local PBS station. That is a Leatherwood tradition. We always try and catch it uh, when it comes up on uh, Independence Day on PBS. You talking about it's a capital a great fourth, suggestion. Brent? A capital fourth, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's a it's a fantastic uh, tradition. Hey, Lindsay, I wrote about that in my piece at urlc.com this week, which you didn't mention, but that's okay. Uh, but it's about how you can celebrate the 4th of July. So if you want to check it out, it's up at urlc.com. Brent and Josh and our listeners, that's your look at urlc.com. Lindsay, once again, thanks for that. Brent, take us to the culture section for the week. All right, so this week in culture, here we go. Cooperative program giving. The cooperative program, as a reminder, is the vehicle that provides vital resources to send missionaries overseas, to plant churches domestically, to help us at the RLC spread the gospel in the public square. Uh, It was down, it was reported this week in Baptist Press, by only 1.4% for the year, which is incredible given all the struggles that our churches uh, across the globe have have faced with the coronavirus. It's truly amazing. From the BP report, it says that gifts to the cooperative program for June 2020 were below budget by about $1.3 million, but the deficit was much less than projected for the month as the coronavirus pandemic continues to impact churches financially. I I just want to stop and say this is just an incredible uh, achievement by the folks uh, who are Southern Baptists, who are faithfully and sacrificially continuing to give in the midst uh, of this this pandemic. And, and we're just thankful uh, for all of them for doing that and for our churches uh, to continue uh, to faithfully serve the com- their communities. We are, and it's pretty remarkable that it has only dropped uh, just over a percent. So that just speaks to the Lord's provision, but also the faithfulness of Southern Baptists to give. Also speaks to the pandemic happening at this moment in history when we actually have the ability to give online. So we're very thankful for that um, so that we can keep the ministry of the gospel going. That's right. At the beginning of the week, there was a lot of Supreme Court news. So the high court affirmed religious access to state programs, continuing the Supreme Court's um, precedents about uh, churches 
and religious institutions being treated equally as other secular institutions. Uh, Baptist Press reports that the U.S. Supreme Court narrowly upheld on Tuesday a state tax credit scholarship program that includes religious schools, thereby maintaining its recent support of the right of faith, faith groups to participate in government programs. It was a five to four decision that overturned a Montana Supreme Court decision that had invalidated a state program providing tax credits for up to $150 for a donation to a student scholarship organization. This this was an important ruling. Yeah, Brent, this was a major ruling. And honestly, it was a huge victory for religious liberty because what it was actually was that the Supreme Court struck down uh, discrimination against religious schools, against uh, the, the ability of parents uh, to take this money that would be available to parents trying to put their kid in any private school. You know, we recognize that any state does not have, uh, they don't have to, you know, provide vouchers or funding or this kind of scholarship money uh, to parents who are seeking to send their kids to private schools. But if you are going to send your children to private schools, what the Supreme Court said this week is you cannot discriminate against religious schools uh, simply because they are religious. And so that was a major win. And it also uh, struck down uh, something that is is these longstanding laws that exist in, I think, 37 states called Blaine Amendments uh, that were rooted basically in anti-Catholic bigotry, but have been used to... um, to discriminate against religious uh, schools, faith-based schools, for decades. And so this was a major win at the Supreme Court this week for religious liberty. And if what Josh was just saying was like drinking through a fire hydrant, then we have resources that our policy staff put together in D.C. that will help you understand these, helps me understand these cases. So an explainer about this and then uh, a top quotes piece about this. On the downside this week, uh, particularly for the pro-life listeners of our podcast, uh, the Supreme Court ruled five to four in a case uh, stemming from Louisiana called the June Medical Services case. And this case was about ensuring that admitting privileges for doctors who performed abortions were mandatory so that if something went wrong in the course of conducting an abortion, that doctor could take the patient and provide medical care to the patient in a local hospital. The court struck this down. What was really noteworthy about this, beyond the fact that it is obviously a loss for us in the pro-life community, was the reasoning of Chief Justice John Roberts, who had in an earlier case uh, dissented from the opinion. And now he upheld uh, this decision. Did I explain that right, Josh? That's exactly right, Brent. So it is kind of mystifying to understand what, you know, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, uh, how he ended up deciding or, or coming to his, you know, conclusions on this case. Because as you mentioned, he literally, not only did he say that he ruled the other way when we were looking at basically a, a case with the same fact pattern uh, in the state of Texas. He said in his opinion on Monday that he still agrees with his former opinion, that he still thinks that that was decided the wrong way and that he felt compelled by precedent to, you know, adhere to the ruling uh, from that case instead of overturning it. And so that led to this 5-4 decision where now uh, this, you know, really effective law that was, you know, guaranteed to raise the standard of care for women uh, in the state of Louisiana that they, they struck down this law. And it is just, again, just incomprehensible to understand how Chief, the Chief Justice arrived at that conclusion. Yeah, it's really sad that um, that these women aren't better protected and given the same standard of care that anyone would receive. Um, I also wanted to point out, again, for this case, DC team has done a great job providing an explainer online, a top quotes piece. And then also, this is the first time in 12 years, I believe, y'all can correct me, that um, the Supreme Court is going to be releasing opinions into July. So we're still waiting on some cases. I think maybe there are eight more left. There are several that we are uh, involved in, and we'll be watching those. And I think more will come down on Monday. So stay tuned for more information about those cases. That's right. It's it's going to be a busy first week of July. It was also busy in the state capital of Mississippi this week. So over the course of last weekend, after y'all recorded the most recent episode of this podcast, um, some incredible historic movements were made by the state legislature in Mississippi where they changed uh, the law to change the design of the Mississippi state flag, which for folks who may not know, it contains in the upper right-hand corner uh, the Confederate battle flag. 
And it has been there since 1894. And a lot of folks were kind of watching. This has been an ongoing conversation in the Magnolia State for several years. And and many folks expected the legislature to just pivot and put it up for a statewide referendum, which many folks expected uh, to fail. But instead, in uh, honestly, a remarkable moment of leadership, uh, the state legislature decided to vote for just outright changing the flag altogether. And so at the uh, signing ceremony for the legislation, the governor, Governor Tate Reeves, he said in a tweet, tonight I signed the bill to retire the 1894 Mississippi flag and begin the process of selecting a new one, emblazoned with the words, in God we trust. Now more than ever, we must lean on our faith, put our divisions behind us, and unite for a greater good. Uh, Again, I I can't underscore, this was truly a remarkable moment in Mississippi, and obviously we're having a a wider cultural conversation right now uh, about uh, memorials and monuments dedicated uh, to the Confederacy, particularly in in the South. And this was this was just truly um, a, a moment and a, a good moment for those of us seeking racial unity. There's no doubt that's right, Brent. There have been so many people, so many of my friends who are from the state of Mississippi who have lived there for a time uh, have always been eager to see this symbol removed from their state flag. It is one of those things that we don't even think about that often, although I have to say uh, Tennessee has a much better state flag than North Carolina. And so ever since moving to Tennessee, I've been even more appreciative of the state flag. Uh, But it is is a, a major thing, or it's not a small thing, that you wouldn't be able to fly your state's flag or, or, or present that or display that anywhere in your home or in your office it's simply because you're either embarrassed or you you find offensive uh, something that is built into literally the fabric of your state's emblem. And so uh, this is a major step forward. It's something that a lot of people did not expect to see and how encouraging to see something like that come as a such a good and, and hopeful thing uh, come out of this moment where we are especially focused on issues related to to race and racial justice in America. And I think our listeners will be interested to know, which many of them probably already do because Dr. Moore talks about it all the time, but uh, Russell Moore, his hometown is Biloxi, Mississippi, uh, and he has done work on this for years. He's written articles about this in the past, but he also had an article that showed up in uh, as an op-ed in the Washington Post about this change and what it's truly about. And so we're thankful for the way that he's able to lead out our organization and lead out for Southern Baptists on this issue. So we'll be sure to link that in the show notes so that uh, y'all can peruse what Dr. Moore wrote in the Washington Post. So moving over to coronavirus. Uh, This week, for the first time, the U.S. daily corona case count, according to the Wall Street Journal, crossed 50,000 active cases uh, in one day. That's a remarkable number. And Probably more alarmingly is Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, who is the head of the coronavirus response for the White House, told lawmakers on Capitol Hill that he could see 100,000 new cases per day coming in the near future. Uh, Dr. Fauci testified to a Senate committee on Tuesday that he would not be surprised if the U.S. begins reporting as many as 100,000 new cases a day. Quote, I'm very concerned and not satisfied with what's going on because we are going in the wrong direction. You know, I have to admit, I'm kind of nervous about this second wave. It's I wasn't as nervous the first time around, but the second wave, I know that for a lot of people, um, the effects of coronavirus are not um, bad, severe, but you just never know who you're going to pass it on to, who it might affect in a more severe way. I was watching, I think it was the Today Show, they interviewed a 30-year-old doctor who has been wrestling for two and a half months with the um, with the fallout of this, and he's a healthy man. And so not to be bound by fear, but I just think, I know we're in the midst of a mask debate too about wearing masks in public. Like people, just please wear masks so that we're not stuck in our houses for three years because I'm about to go crazy. <laughs> I'm yeah, reaching yeah. peak quarantine craziness. Um, and also it's just about love of neighbor. And I know it's out of sight, out of mind, you think it can't happen to you, but we've got to be willing to protect um, protect those around us and, and do what it takes until this goes away. That's so there's right. my love little your, PSA for the day. No, that's great. And you're right. Love your neighbor, wear a mask. And, and here's, I mean, selfishly, 
I, I want to get back out and as soon as possible, I want to be able to go to football games this fall. I want, I want the economy humming again. And it seems to me that one way we can help get us closer to that is by all of us just taking a little bit of personal responsibility and loving our neighbors and wearing a mask. So that's a, that's a really good word, Lindsay. Part of uh, the effect that most people are starting to turn an eye towards is schools, because the school year will be starting up for many parts of the country next month in August and by virtually everyone in September. So uh, the New York Times was reporting this week that many students will be in classrooms only part of the week this fall. So there are some school districts, according to this reporting, where students will have a plan where they are in school once a week, uh, every three weeks. Uh, there are other schools that are doing a hybrid model where some weeks are completely online, other weeks the students are in school or they're splitting the weeks. It is going to be a daunting challenge uh, for parents out there, and we shouldn't lose sight of that, especially parents where um, both uh, a mother and a father are are working. Uh, this is just going to be an incredible challenge. My heart goes out to single parents as well. Uh, this is going to be a difficult season, and I'm not sure that we are fully prepared for the uh, the incredible amount of stress uh, that awaits us. Well, and even as the church, we don't fully know what we can do to help one another because we're all in the same boat. <laughs> this is the first time that we've come up against something like this. So like you said, those those who have to work, those who need need the finances and, and uh, need to be able to provide for their families— this is going to put them really between a rock and a hard place. And we're just going to have to pray about ways that we can help one another bear the burden of that. That's right. Uh, the other effect that coronavirus is having is on businesses that are trying to figure out how to reopen. I mean, we're all dealing with this. Well, this week it came out that Google has pushed back their U.S. office opening plan uh, back another month to September at the earliest, according to a memo that Google has sent employees. Uh, Back in May, they had said that July 6th was the date that they were preparing for folks to come back, and now it's pushed back once again. And look, even for us at the RLC, I was on a conference call this week with one of our partners uh, about an event we were uh, planning to do, and we've had to call that off for the fall just because there is so much uncertainty, and you don't want to inadvertently uh, create a source where people are coming and turn everyone into a potential vector of the of the disease. It's uh, this is very hard for businesses that are trying to plan for the next few months. One business that doesn't seem to be having any issues with uh, planning for the next few months is our beloved chain Whataburger. So our Texas friends are especially proud of Whataburger. Folks who are along the Gulf Coast they know the yummy goodness that is Whataburger. Uh, They have announced expansion plans into greater parts of the South, and one of those locations is going to be in Tennessee. This is like your Hamilton hot take, Brent. I think Whataburger is a little overrated. Wow. I think I'd rather have a McDonald's cheeseburger, actually. Oh, wow, Lindsay. (laughs) I'm sorry. Oh, Lindsay, that was a hot take for the ages. Uh, It's one that will go down in infamy. Uh, with this podcast that has produced many. So Whataburger coming to Tennessee. We're really excited about that. The place I want to end is politics. So there was some noteworthy political news this week because it was the end of the second quarter fundraising uh, time period. So all of the campaigns at the federal most state levels will report finances uh, on June 30th. And so this week we learned that uh, the Trump campaign had raised an enormous amount of money, $131 million for this quarter. But it was topped by former Vice President Joe Biden's campaign, who raised $141 million, $10 million more in in fundraising. These two campaigns are vacuuming up resources right now to prepare for uh, the campaign this fall. And that is just, I mean, it was an incredible number. And I thought it was noteworthy for our audience that's trying to stay up to date on the latest cultural news. Yeah, honestly, I have no idea. I mean, not only do we expect every election year to be presidential election cycle to be pretty chaotic, but in the midst of 2020, who knows what's going to happen? <laughs> that's right. 2020 is not done with us yet. It's only halfway done. <laughs> All right, so Lindsay and Josh, that's your look at This Week in Culture. 
So now we're about to talk to Katie McCoy. Katie is a professor at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and uh, also teaches at Scarborough College. And we're really excited to have her on the podcast today. So Katie, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, if you could, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you're serving in ministry right now. And while you're at it, tell us one thing that God is teaching you in this season of life and ministry. Hey, it's great to be with you all. So I am living in, I would say the DFW area, but we're changing that around here. The Fort Worth, Dallas area is how we like to say it now here at Southwestern. So I've been at Southwestern since I was a student in 2008. I got my MDiv from Southwestern, my PhD in Systematic from Southwestern, and then they I, they can't get rid of me. So I've been teaching at Southwestern for close to five years now in uh, theology and women's studies, and then I also serve at my church as minister to women. One thing I've been learning lately, it, it comes from uh, a book that was written by Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he talks about how part of our testing of our faith happens when it seems as though we're crying out to God for something and he doesn't seem terribly interested. He he seems to not hear us, and yet he tells us that he hears us all the time. And something that I'm learning is how it takes situations like that for me to have uh, the opportunity to see and bring to the surface how I think of or relate to God. And um, part of trusting, learning to trust the Lord means knowing and believing, like First John says, knowing and believing the love that the Father has for us. And so if you find yourself in a situation, like I often find myself in a situation where it feels like the Lord is just kind of uh, busy with other things, then it likely is that he is testing your faith. And that is uh, indicative of all of the promises of God that he tells us about what it is to have our faith grown and tested and refined and purified. And it's all intentional. He's never not interested and not working in your life. Katie, that's such a good lesson. And I'm so thankful that you shared that. I remember in my own life going through a season of spiritual crisis when I kind of sensed that for the first time. And um, I just, it just threw me for a loop and I just didn't understand what was happening. And, um, but, but like you said, the Lord has since used that to grow me in my faith and really teach me to rely on the fact of his word when my feelings are not coinciding with that. So it's so true. Yeah. We, we say, we know these verses like walk by faith and not by sight until we actually have to do that. Right. And then all of a sudden Uh you're like, this is awful. What is going on? This is not fun. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I did not sign up for this. So yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I said that for sure. Oh man. Well, we're particularly interested to get your take on this next question. So this podcast focuses on Christians and culture, and we recently addressed the Twitter controversy swirling around J.K. Rowling and her insistence that a biological female is, in fact, surprise, a woman. Can you explain more about this and what Christians can learn from it? Yeah, so J.K. Rowling is being called a TERF, a trans-exclusionary radical feminist, And um, a a TERF is someone who says that if you're going to be about women's equality, you have to protect what it means to be a woman. And so a biological male who uh, was born into a system of patriarchy, is how feminist ideology goes, has no ability to identify with and relate to the experiences of collective oppression of women. I'm speaking in, in feminist ideological terms now. And so what women like J.K. Rowling say is you can't have trans women be defined as women, that there is some type of significance to our biological selves. And ironically, um, radical feminists are finding that they might have more of an ally in Christian theology than they do in these other cultural silos. And you'll hear them say things like biology is not bigotry. Um, and that, that our physical sexed selves inform or at least indicate our psychological gendered selves, or they, they should. And uh, one of the particular arguments is that feminism, ideological feminism, says that, that being a woman is so much more than how you dress or how you behave and how you culturally adapt yourself to expectations of men and what men say being a woman is. Well, transgender ideology says that you actually express your gender dysphoria. You express your gender identity by things like how you dress and how you behave and how you conform to cultural expectations of that gender. So it's really uh, an indication, 
uh, I think we're going to see it more and more that uh, this is the effect of our intersectional culture, that the more you're dividing people into these constituencies and these subgroups and identities, eventually claims are going to clash. Um, And so really we're getting to a point, Lindsay, where believing Genesis 1, that God created mankind as, as male and female, is itself a subversive act. And then to, to speak that out loud will con- be considered itself a discriminatory and oppressive act, one that doesn't just uh, cause offense or be an affront to other people, but is actually considered an act of violence against someone else and uh, depersonalization. And so some of what the J.K. Rowling debacle is doing, it is, it is bringing to a the surface these ideas that have been rumbling for quite a while, and it's showing what happens when you fail to conform to the cultural lingo and narrative and ideas that uh, someone can simply decide that they are a man, decide that they are a woman. And if you disagree, you are siding with the oppressors of our, the dominant culture. It's, it's really a clash of worldviews and ideology. So it, it seems like it's just this big Twitter war. It, it's actually indicative of something much bigger. And um, it's, it's only a matter of time, not to sound doom and gloom, but it's a matter of time before churches get canceled too. It's, it's going to happen to, to teach and to preach on the simplicity that God created us, body and soul, biology and gender is going to become um, a, an act of cultural bigotry. Well, we will certainly be praying that churches remain steadfast uh, in the face of that challenge. So uh, appreciate your your sentiments there, uh, Katie. So uh, among the many other things that you do in and around uh, the Southwestern community, you have just recently started serving in women's ministry at your own local church. So what excites you about this opportunity? And tell our audience, why is women's ministry so important? So personally, there's an element of just breathing new life into what I'm teaching. It's very synergistic, and it just uh, helps helps me keep the main things the main things, both in the classroom and then in my church. One of the really exciting things, though, is seeing women who are very eager to contribute to and serve the life of the church. Um, they want to be part of the spiritual growth of others. I'm, I'm hearing from women who are so excited for the practical tools of how to disciple another believer. And, and they want to see women in their church grow. They want to see women in their church find deep friendships and true community with each other. I didn't, I didn't think I'd be trying to do this in the middle of a global pandemic where we're, you know, a bad report away from having to go back into quarantine, but uh, slowly but surely being a part of, of just seeing this ministry grow and being a part of the vision of my pastor, women's ministry is so important for a couple of reasons. First of all, defining what a women's ministry is. If it is a ministry to the women in your church, that's one thing and it's very needful, certainly. But the approach that I like to take is um, equipping and empowering the women in my church to do kingdom ministry. So it is it is the ministry of the women in our churches. And the history for that goes all the way back to the book of Acts. And certainly women in the early centuries of the church, they were part of turning the world upside down with ministries that seemed small, may not have had a very big platform, but they changed their communities one person at a time. One of the things I love about working with women is how quick they are to meet a need. And I think when we have a church that just sort of sets them loose to do that in every good and biblically sound way. It can just really change an entire community. Katie, I hope that they know how blessed they are to have you serving as a minister to women there. And you're such an asset to that church. And I just know that the Lord is going to use you. And I'm so interested to know, how did the Lord work in your life to lead you where you are today? And um, what are some lessons you could draw out of that to encourage others? 
You know, it's interesting because as much of a, a planner type A person, I, I, tr- I like to be and try to be, when I look at my life, I can't say that I, I really planned anything out that I'm doing. It really was just a series of taking the next steps. It was a series of just taking the next step of what was in front of me. I didn't, I wouldn't say I even had like a specific call to a particular ministry direction as much as it was um, feeling the leading of the Lord to get as much education as I could to be prepared for what God had me to do. And then whomever he wanted me to become. And, and that, that call to education may not look the same for other believers either, but it's just saying, what, what do I need to do to be ready for what God has me to do? I look back, Lindsay, and I can just see how God was protecting me and meeting a need that I didn't even know I had. And sometimes the only thing that we can see ahead of us is this is just the next step. This is the next step. You don't see the next 12, 45, or even three. You just see the next one. Um, and through that too, sometimes it feels like we're, we're catapulted at a fast rate. And other times it feels like you're standing still and you're totally stagnant. But as long as you have the Holy Spirit working in your life, you're never stagnant. You're stagnant. You're just being prepared. You're just being sanctified. Um, God is just moving in your life, not only to get you in the right place, but to prepare you for that place. So I think one of the the lessons for other people that I hope would be very encouraging is don't look around to the right or the left. Focus on what does the Lord have for you to do today? You don't need to compare yourself to anybody. God is not asking you to be anybody else. And one of the most freeing things that I'm learning right now is to just be Katie, be Katie walking with the Holy Spirit, um, pursuing sanctification, living for God's glory. And he's kind of really the one who orchestrates the circumstances. Psalm 138.8 is one of my life verses. And it says that the Lord is the one who fulfills his purpose for us. So he does the working. He does the fulfilling of the purpose. All I have to do is just keep taking the next step. Katie, that is some great encouragement that both the women and the men in our audience can certainly draw much from. So, all right, this last question is is actually one that I'm pretty excited about. This is a great one. So you interview, <laughs> you. well, I didn't think it up, so I could say that. Josh and Lindsay thought it up, but I thought this was a great uh, question. So you interview various leaders on a series for Southwestern called Ministry Now. So if you could secure some dream interviews with those that you admire, whether they are still with us or not, uh, who would you have on uh, to interview? So um, I I should probably come up with something more impressive than this, but I I really don't have one. It's actually my paternal grandfather. Um, His name was Jim McCoy, and he was this fiery preacher. He was a a prisoner of war in World War II. And while he was a a prisoner of the Nazis, he surrendered his life to ministry. And he just prayed, you know, Lord, if you will get me out of this, I will serve you for the rest of my life. But he started there. He started in this POW camp and started preaching the gospel. He preached his first sermon on Easter Sunday. And the more I learn about him, the more I wish that I had known him more. He died about 10 years ago. And uh, it's before I was called to ministry and did seminary or anything. And I, I so wish I could call him up and talk to him about the things that are going on. He um, he was a very quiet advocate for racial equality um, it, among his family and within his community. And, and he preached things in St. Louis, Missouri in the 1960s that, um, that drew more than a little bit of ire from among some of the white constituents in the community. And so I just kind of wish I could talk to him as just this man of very quiet courage. Um, he was fearless. In fact, he would look at people and say, you know, I faced Hitler. You don't scare me. Um, and he was willing to stand alone. He was just willing to stand alone on, on what was right and um, principled. Uh, but with that, as tough as he was, he was so kind. He was so kind and he had so much compassion on other people, especially when they were hurting. And I just think about that generation too and how much I, I wish they were, I wish our grandparents were around and, and younger, like we could go back in time and just hear what they had to say, because I feel like we 
we're missing that wisdom, that kind of gritty wisdom of just do right, trust the Lord for the outcome and, and fear no man. Gosh, Katie, that is so good. And honestly, uh, it's it's kind of ironic. My own grandfather, who has been so like a mentor to me and someone who has just shaped my life in so so many meaningful ways. He's actually called me twice while we were doing this podcast. Uh, so I have no idea what I have no idea what that's about. But anyway, just that even as you were talking, sometimes you know we we celebrate the lives of people who we consider to be you know great people throughout history. Uh, but oftentimes we overlook or or you know undervalue the influence of those uh, who have shaped the legacies of our own family. So that's that's really cool uh, to hear you share about. And we're just grateful for you taking the time to join us uh, today to talk about uh, all the things that we covered. And we're grateful for your ministry down there at Southwestern. So uh, for, for Lindsay and Brent, I just want to say thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you. I always love hanging out with my ERLC friends. You all are just wonderful salts of the earth believers. Well, thank you for that, Katie. We appreciate you. So now it's time for The Lunchroom, where every week we tell you the things that we've been talking about with one another. Uh, Lindsay, you're up first this week. Tell us what's on your mind. Okay, so I have a fascination with true crime. I love Dateline. You do. I do. I love Dateline. I love the Crime Junkies podcast. So I don't know what that says about me. But when I was a little girl, I don't know why my parents let me watch this, but I used to watch Rescue 911. Did y'all ever watch that? They've remade it since, and it's not as good. Um, And I used to watch Unsolved Mysteries. Did y'all ever watch that back in the... 80s, 90s, I can't remember exactly when it was. Well, it was, yes, it, it was it was in the 80s and actually one of the episodes was about a murder mystery that took place right outside of my home uh, on Signal Mountain, Tennessee. Okay, well, I'll have to find that one. It had it had Chattanooga just going bonkers. So, I remember as a little girl I watched it and there is this one episode where these people had like these people in robes or something in their backyard. And I vividly remember it creeping me out to no end. So to this day, Unsolved Mysteries creeps me out. Nothing else does. But it's on Amazon Prime for free. And so what better way to uh, spend my quarantine than to creep myself out with Unsolved Mysteries? So I have been watching... Robert Stack hosts the original Unsolved Mysteries, and it's just as creepy and as great as ever. And I wasn't aware of this, but this Wednesday, just of this week, they came out with a new Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix. I do not know what it's what it's like. I can't necessarily recommend it, but if you like creepy true crime, but also there's some heartfelt, heartwarming stories in there too, you'll want to check out uh, Unsolved Mysteries. There's also some sci-fi, if I remember correctly, and like usually one of the segments uh, has some kind of weird kind of sci-fi uh, aspect yeah, to there it are. as well. I don't usually like yeah. those. I fast forward to those. They talked about the Mothman. You remember the Mothman? They made a movie about that. It's You can fast forward to the ones you don't like, but it just reminds me of childhood and of creepiness, and it's just so good. Well, in the spirit of Independence Day, uh, I, I love uh, reading about presidential history. And so while I was away uh, on a family trip, I got to read through a book called The President's Club, Inside the World's Most Exclusive Fraternity. Uh, it's by authors Michael Duffy and Nancy Gibbs. And honestly, I just thought this was a great look into the history of transitions from one president to another. A, it reminded me that we've just had some really just fundamentally decent individuals uh, serve as president of the United States, and, and that was heartening to read about. There's also been just some incredible drama that has gone on behind the scenes. Uh, when it comes to presidential transitions or presidents picking their vice president. So a couple of things that stood out to me was uh, the fact that former president uh, Richard Nixon was advising President Bill Clinton when it came to foreign policy. Um, And another episode that stuck out to me was when uh, President Ronald Reagan, uh, as he was accepting the nomination, was in some high-stakes negotiations with former President Gerald Ford, to potentially be his vice president. I mean, there's just all kinds of stories in this, and I think it's a great read uh, for the Independence Day season that we're now in. 
Brent, I have uh, read The President's Club. It's one of my favorite books uh, that I've read on that topic. For my lunchroom this week, there are several things that I just thought I would mention. So one, like the New York Times uh, published an article this week that was just on the Zoom shirt, right? Like on, we've all been on Zoom calls so much. We've been doing so, you know, so many unrelenting meetings and, and video calls where we're just, you know, trying to stay connected with people and get work done while we are in this time of quarantine and social distancing. And so if it's, you know, the article is fine, but there's this thing I loved about it. It's this phrase that somebody highlighted. It said, the platonic ideal of the Zoom shirt stays mostly buttoned all the time with just enough of them undone to get the thing over your head. I thought that was great, uh, you know, great reference to Plato there, but it was just hilarious because, uh, you know, all of us now have these Zoom wardrobes. I was on a video call the other day where I was basically wearing sweatpants and I accidentally, like I crossed my legs while I was sitting there and I realized that now you can see my sweatpants in the in the shot even though it was you know business on top so anyway just a little advice for you guys make sure when you're doing your zoom calls that you know which parts of your wardrobe are going to be visible uh i don't think it's just a little bit of advice that- i think it's a little bit of tmi <laughs> there you go you know, I mean, they were they were sweatpants <laughs> One of our coworkers ordered a Zoom shirt and he got a Zoom mask thrown in for free that matched it. That's right. Oh my gosh, he did. He had a matching mask to his shirt and it was just so, it was so overdone. Now, to his credit, he recognized that himself, but it was just, it was, it was wow. All right, Lindsay, I, I just want to leave you with this because I'm, I'm, my mind is still just scrambled. This is just, you got to feel this soaring oratory. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. I mean, that's the opening of the Declaration of Independence, Lindsay. Yeah, I mean, just that, that, that should just speak to your spirit as an American. It should. <laughs> but I just read it to you for the first time. I just read it to you for the first time. <laughs> no, I'm sure I read it in school. I just don't remember because it just, I, t- I take it for granted. That's what it is. Well, you can listen, you listeners, can please don't send me nasty hate mail. I don't want, I don't want hate mail and I won't read it. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. Well, hey guys, this was a fun lunchroom segment, and uh, if nothing else, you can you know maybe read the book that Brent is suggesting, or at least read the Declaration of Independence. I'm not sure how many words it is, but honestly, it's not that long, and it is well worth your time. Uh, it is you know it, it is in so many ways uh, the the founding creed of our nation, and I would encourage you, especially in light of the Fourth of July, uh, to take advantage of that time. Uh, but just as a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes, especially the books that we have recommended, and you. You know, you can probably even find a link to where you can read for free the Declaration of Independence. Uh, if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your podcast app and leaving us a rating or review. We want to say happy 4th of July. And for Brent and Lindsay and myself, we will be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.